Blessed Father in heaven, we come before you this morning on this great feast. We ask that uh, your words be spoken through me. We ask that our congregation here be edified through what you might say through me. Lord, please uh, bless the Holy Spirit's influence upon my words. And I pray that uh, the congregation be receptive to your teachings. And Lord, may we all be more grow closer together in unity of faith through what you speak to us throughout this feast, Father. We ask these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Good morning to everyone. I'd like you to turn in your Bible this morning. Let's look at a, a single verse in Romans. Romans 9, 29, if you would. And let's read that together, if you would. So Romans 9, 29. Um, and the, the title of my lesson this morning is Yahweh or the Lord and so we're going to talk about what name we use to address our Father in Heaven I know that you know for many of you that's something that you know I, I feel that we're, we're not all the same you know it's hard to be a congregation that's all one body we if I'm singing you know I will call upon the Lord and the person next to me answered and says, I will call upon Yahweh. There's, there's inevitably, you know, there, there, there's a difference there. And so this topic, I, you know, for me, it's been a, a long study in my life. It's definitely changed, you know, the outcome of where I am now uh, based on where I ended up on this study. And so, you know, I, I just want to present to you some, some facts and things that I've uncovered over the years. Um, I think that there's a great deal of misunderstanding. You know, there's things that are accepted as absolute fact by, you know, science and by archaeologists and so forth that really are, are not so concrete as they make them out to be. You know, we might read in a science book about how evolution is just unquestionable. And we, none of us have any qualms about saying no. You know, we stand against that. And so when... You know, there's things that question the authenticity of Scripture, and people say, oh, this is how it was, you know, why do we accept that? Um, so, let's read together Romans 9.29. Everyone together. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and been like unto Gomorrah. In that passage, you might wonder why, why I'd picked that passage, but... You know, Paul is writing a letter to the Roman church, and in Rome, the spoken language of the people there is, that, you know, it's pretty much uncontested that they would know the, the Greek language. Um, he's writing to, you know, essentially a Gentile church, where Greek is the spoken language. And so, but it's very clear that he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah in this text. And, you know, it's not that he's quoting a Greek translation, but he's, he's physically translating from the Hebrew text of, math, of Isaiah and putting it into his letter. And you see that because in this text, he transliterated a Hebrew word into his Greek letter. That is the word Sabaoth. Okay? The word Sabaoth, it's not, it doesn't mean Sabbath, like you might guess, but it means Hosts. It's the Hebrew word for hosts. You know, the, and uh, we see that appellation quite often in the Hebrew scriptures where the author says, you know, the Lord of hosts. 
is his name. David, you know, I come against you in the power of the Lord of the hosts. Um, and so the, the peculiar thing to me in this text is, is that Paul transliterated the Hebrew word Sabaoth, but yet just prior to that, in the text of Isaiah, if you looked up the Hebrew text, you would have the, the tet, what's called the Tetragrammaton, the four Hebrew letters that are the name of God, you know, yod heh vav heh or Yahweh, as some might pronounce it. And so, you know, Paul's demonstrated through the transliteration of the word Sabaoth that he can, when writing in Greek, transliterate a Hebrew word into the Greek language. He did that with Sabaoth, but he did not do that with the formal name of God. Um, and so, my question is, is, you know, well, why did he do that? And, you know, or did he do that? A lot of, you know, people I know and have known for a long time over the years and people that I've had to kind of break fellowship would say that unquestionably that he, that this text that we are reading here does not represent Paul's original. They'd say that Paul must have, based on, you know, their understanding of how important the name of God is, that he would have had to have written Yahweh, or a transliteration. You know, he would have had to have brought the name of God, spoken name, into the text. There's no way, you know, based on their concept of the name and how important it is, that he would have actually written, you know, Lord. You know, the, if you look at the Greek text here, it's, it's Kyrios. It's, you know, the Greek word for Lord. It's a very, you know, and, you know, Lord is a, is a very good English translation of that Greek name, or Greek word Lord, or Kyrios. Very, very equivalent. Um, and so, you know, I just think that if we, you know, kind of think about, like I said, that kind of accusation or thought, you know, does Paul's letter to the Romans, the Greek text that we have of that manuscript, does it actually represent the original? Um, and, you know, what can we learn from that? Um, perhaps if you're a, like an anti-Paul guy or something, uh, you know, James, in his letter, he, he does the same thing. He, uh, in chapter 4 of James, he says, you know, the wages which are of you kept back by fraud have entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. So James uses, you know, does the same thing. Um, if we look at all the you know, texts and manuscripts of the New Testament, without question, you know, we have about 6,000, you know, ancient manuscripts of the Greek text of the New Testament. And there's, you know, there's part, or, you know, pieces, of, you know, fragments, you know, they're not really big, they're maybe like a page, but, you know, we, we actually have fragments of the Gospel of Matthew that are dated in the first century. There's a little, you know, like it's, it's just a page, but it's called like the Magdalene Papyrus, and it's the story of, you know, of uh, Mary Magdalene, you know, from the gospel, it's a, you know, a page out of the Gospel of Matthew, and it's, it's dated in the first century, and it's written in Greek. Um, we have uh, the Ryland Papyrus, which is a piece of the Gospel of John, and, you know, it's, it's dated, you know, based on the style of writing, um, which is well-established way to date documents, you know, but it's, it's a piece of the Gospel of John that's from the first century. So, 
Yeah, and then just coming, you know, a little bit forward into history, you know, we have manuscripts of the New Testament that are, you know, clearly from like the second and third centuries, you know, like the whole, whole New Testament book that's written in Greek. And in, in every one of these manuscripts, you know, together, like I said, there's about 6,000 Greek manuscripts, but then there's translations from the Greek into Latin. There's like the old Latin, there's the Peshetta, which is like an Aramaic translation of, you know, the Greek text into Aramaic. You know, all those manuscripts together, there's about 24,000 ancient manuscripts that witness to the text of the New Testament, to the text of the Greek scriptures. And in not one single one of those manuscripts is there a transliteration of the Hebrew name that we would find in, in the Hebrew scriptures into that text. In every case, you'll find when the apostles and disciples are quoting, you know, making a quote from the Old Testament text, they will either translate it to the Lord or hokirios in Greek, you know, or theos, the Greek word for God. That's an unquestionable example in, in every manuscript. There is not one that contains, you know, the Hebrew letters yod heh vav heh. There is not one transliteration also of, you know, the Savior's name outside of the language. You know, there's not a, a better intentional transliteration of Jesus' plausible original Hebrew name into the text. You know, there's no Hebrew, there's no document of the New Testament that has all Greek letters, and then you find, you know, Hebrew letters. It's always just Greek. And like I said, you know, every one of those has, when quoting the Old Testament, the apostles, you know, wrote the Lord. Um, and so, you know, I've read books, I mean, there's literally entire books written about how translators handled the name of God when bringing, you know, the Hebrew scriptures into another language. You know, pages and pages are written about this. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, but perhaps to me, I really think that there's only really one set of translators that I'm interested in how they brought the name of God, the Tetragrammaton, into another language. And that's the apostles. Because I believe that they wrote their gospels and epistles by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So what they wrote forever should stand as the example to Christian believers of how we should bring a Hebrew name into another language. So they wrote, as we just saw, you know, Paul had the ability, he could have transliterated and written Yahweh or Jehovah or you know, transliteration in his text there, but he didn't. He wrote Kyrios, he wrote Lord. And you know, so I think that that should stand forever as our example. Paul tells us in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 4.16 and later in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, you know, be ye followers of me as I also am of Christ. And so my question is, why isn't the example that Paul and the other apostles, you know, showed us? Why, why would we vary from that example. If we are to, you know, 
if we're to take their example, we should do as they did, and we would translate the Hebrew Tetragrammaton to into the Lord, because that's what they did. We're Christians, and we follow the, their teachings. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it really is a sad thing to me, because I've you know, had a lot of conversations with, you know, kinda, there's a real, you know, kind of its own little grassroots movement called, like, the Sacred Name Movement. And I've interacted with a lot of these people over the years. And, you know, honestly, I think that they're so entrenched in that mindset that, you know, we have to use Yahweh, we have to use Yahshua for the names of God, that, you know, if a autographed copy of the Gospel of Matthew was found, you know, with Matthew's own signature in it, if it didn't have the name Yahweh in it, or the, you know, the written Hebrew text, where the name of God would be in quotations from the Old Testament, they would literally just reject it. You know, their, their conviction that we have to use a name for God and that it's, it's wrong to translate it to Lord is just so entrenched in them that you could show them an original. And if it's not there, they just, they'd reject it. Um, you know, there's a lot of them will tell you that, well, the, the entire New Testament was first written in, in Hebrew, and then it was translated. And when it was translated, that's when it got lost. Uh, the, I mean, you can spend a lot of time looking at that kind of theory, and it, it's, man, it, there's just no evidence for it. There's maybe, you know, there's one, tet, one account of a papyrus who said that Matthew first recorded his, um, you know, like the details of the gospel in, in Aramaic. Um, but it you know, kind of refers, seems to refer more to like his notes, his personal notes were maybe in Aramaic originally. But there's just, there's no witness to it. And you know, if, you, if a text is written in one language and then it's translated into another, it, it's pretty apparent that it's been translated just the way that you know, the language doesn't flow as much and you know, you're trying to follow the text. And, and then uh, also, you know, if there's not just one translation made, then you know, because it's so easy to translate a word different then there's a lot of variance in the text, in, a tran you know, in translations. You know, if I translated Matthew and then you know, Reed translated it, they, they probably wouldn't agree. They wouldn't be you know, exactly the same. And so you know, if, if all the books of the New Testament were written in Hebrew originally and then translated, there'd be very wide, there'd be a lot wider disparity in the Greek manuscripts. But you know, they agree almost unanimously. There's like a 99 percentile agreement in the various manuscripts that we have of these texts. And so it, the, this, Greek, or this Hebrew original idea is just, it's really untenable. There's really no support. There's no manuscripts that uh, seem to, you know, support that. They're, they're just non-existent. Um, and then you just kind of look in history. If you think about like uh, the intertestamental period, you know, there's Judas Maccabeus, right? He's like the, the George Washington of, you know, Judea at that time. He's the one who's, you know, threw off Greek rule and established Judea as its own country, right? Well, what language are the two books of Maccabees written in? They're written in Greek. Almost, I think that all the books in, in the Apocrypha are originally written in Greek. 
That, that should say something to you about the, the language of Galilee, of Judea, at the time of Christ. And also what language the New Testament would be written in. It was, they may have thrown off Greek rule, but they still, you know, Greek was still very much used. Um, and then, you know, you have the Testament. I think that, it, you know, any discussion about the name of God, whether, you know, Hebrew or so forth, you know, you're going to end up looking at something called the Septuagint. Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. That was made about 295 BC. I want you to think about that. So in approximately 300 BC, about 300 years before Christ even was born, there was so much need for the Hebrews who had spread out over the Greco-Roman world to have a translation of their scriptures in the language that they speak, which was Greek, that this translation was made. <clears throat> and that, that translation was very well accepted. Okay? There was a kind of a story tradition put around that, that they, you know, it's, it's Septuagint, which means 70, and the tradition around it was that they called together 70, you know, rabbis, and that uh, each, they put each one of them in, its, in his own room, and they all individually translated the text, and they all came back together, and they all had the same exact, you know, translation. That's pretty far out there, I'm not saying that's true, but that's the, the type of authority that those early, you know, people who used Septuagint placed on that text. Okay? So it's very, very well accepted. And so, you know, people who were Greek-speaking Hebrews, like in Egypt and in the cities of, of Paul's later missionary journeys, who read that, that text, that Septuagint text, you know, when they read about the stories of Joshua and, and Joseph in that text, those are the names, you know, just like we use the names in our King James Version to name our children with. But those are the names that they read and they would, you know, give to their children. Understand that? Um, a really good example of this is uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, in the Apocrypha, the author you know, took a book that his great grand or that his grandfather had written, and he translates it into Greek for the people of his era. And what does he ascribe his name as? He says his name is Jesus. He had the, you know, he uses what was established in 295 as the transliteration of Joshua's name into Greek, which was Iesus. He used that in about 130 as his name. That's what he wrote of his own volition. He didn't, you know, have any compunctions with that. He didn't see it as tied to some pagan Greek god Zeus. You know, he, his parents named him that. And that's the name that he used for himself. You know, that would be the same name that would be later written in our New Testament, in our Greek New Testament, for the name of our Savior. And it's, it was well used by the people, you know, the Greeks in Dispur or the Hebrews in dispersion who read Greek. That was the names that they would have used. If they read the story of Joshua, I want to name my son that. They're going to use the name Iesus, which is what is later written as our Savior's name in the Greek text. And so, the, also the, the prevalency of the, 
Septuagint is, is really interesting in first century uh, Judea around the time of Christ. Um, I, I think I'll show you, we'll get into that a little bit more, but um, I want to look back a little bit in history and kind of modern history, I guess. You know, it's almost, like I said, there's things that we accept as fact that, you know, we might question a little bit. But it was around the time that higher criticism came in that we, as Christians, accepted the idea that almost all the conversations in the Gospels actually happened in Aramaic. And that, that was a, actually a relatively new idea. If you read you know, some of the reformers talking about that, they would say that most of the public addresses of Jesus, like the Olivet Discourse and the Sermon on the Mount, those that, that he spoke those in Greek, not in Aramaic. And to me, that, that idea that, you know, they had some, they found some Aramaic writings in Judea, and so they just up and said, well, Aramaic was a spoken language by everybody at that time. But, you know, I think that we'll look at some evidence that maybe that's not, not the whole story. Maybe there's a little bit more to it. But I want you to think about higher criticism and how it, it sought to take away the authority of Scripture. And that was one of the main things that... That, that idea that, you know, everything in the Gospels was spoken in Aramaic but written down later in, into Greek is it seems to take away the first-hand account of those events. You know, we place a lot of emphasis when we're studying and really building doctrine on, you know, is this word plural? Is there a definitive article in this statement? You know, little things like that really matter to us in doctrine. And so if we're going to say that you know, so that's kind of what higher criticism did, is it took away some of the authority of the New Testament by saying, well, it's not actually representative of what Christ really said. You know, it's, it's a translation coming through the apostles, and it's, it's later, you know. And it, so it, to me, it really kind of robbed some of the authority away from the Greek New Testament by saying, hey, it's, it's not the, the spoken word. It doesn't actually represent exactly what Christ said. That's something I want you to think about. You know, and, you know do, we, do we accept that or not? So, um, and, you know, I think that something worth noting if you're thinking, you know, for thinking about the Savior's name is, you know, Philip and Andrew are both uh, Greek names. They're not of Hebrew or Aramaic origin. Philip means you know, lover of horses, and Andrew means, uh, you know, like a, a man, a real manly man. But they're, they're Greek names, and that's, you know, two of the apostles. Of the 12 apostles, six of them have names that are, that are of Aramaic or Hebrew origin, and four of them, it's just kind of a little, you know, the etymology is not really w that well known. So if, if Aramaic is the only spoken language at that time, why do these guys have, well, you know, why Philip and Andrew have Greek names? Yeah, a little bit of question there. I gotta maybe think about that. Um, you know, and also like when Joseph and Mary, we read last night, we heard how they, you know, fled from Judea and moved to Egypt for a while until Herod died. weren't there for a long time, but unquestionably, you know, the Egypt is actually where the the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, was made, um, and it's you know well attested that any Hebrews in Egypt, they spoke Greek. Um, and so, you know, if they went to local synagogue while they were there, you know, they would have, you know, 
seems like they would have had to have been Greek speakers. And if they introduced their little baby to that Greek-speaking culture, I think they would have said, uh, here's our, oh, what's your, you know, someone comes up, oh, what's your baby's name? And would have said, Jesus, because that would have been, you know, the, he, the Greek name of Joshua that everyone in that congregation would have been familiar with. And so, you know, that establishes the use of that name to our Savior. Um, and so kind of, you know, as I come back to Galilee, it's important to understand the history of Galilee a little bit. It was only about 100 years before Christ that the region of Galilee came under um, Judean rule. Bef you know, when the exiles came back from Babylon, they settled in Jerusalem and Judea. But, you know, that was... So it wasn't until actually about 100 years before that one of the Hasmonean kings conquered Galilee. And, you know, that opened up the door for people in lower Judea who, you know, were feeling crunched, wanted more land to start moving up into Galilee. But it was still an area of a lot of Greek influence. You know, if you want to do commerce in the big cities like Sepphoris or uh, Decapolis, those, those are Greek names. You know, you, you would have had to do commerce in Greek. That would have been the spoken language, and um, you know, if you kind of think about those those addresses, you know, where Christ is speaking to large crowds, you know, would there have been? Like, I think that you kind of think of the Galileans, you know, the Judean or Hebrews in the area of Galilee is kind of like the Amish. You know, they they wanted to preserve their culture. Their culture was was Hebrew, but you know, anytime you're around some Amish, and if you're in a group of of Amish or Mennonites, and they're talking in their Dutch. Uh, if you're there, then you know if they're polite, they'll they'll all talk in English because they all know it. You know, if they want to include you in the conversation, so you know if Christ is giving a speech to five thousand people, I think he's going to speak in the lingua franca. He's going to speak in the language of it, that everyone there is going to understand because there's going to be. You know, people from those cities that are Greeks and Romans, people that, you know, are Israelites of the dispersion, who he wants the message to go to, but they're not going to understand it if he gives it in Aramaic. He's going to understand it. They're going to understand it if he gives it in Greek. Um, so, and then just, I think there's some really interesting case examples from the New Testament that I want to look at. Because it really is a, a very pointed argument that, of whether... You know, the apostles and Christ spoke Greek, whether, you know, their, their names, you know, had Greek origins. Because it, it really does change whether we're going to emphasize and say, we have to use a Hebrew name for God. And if we don't, then, you know, he's not going to hear our prayers or, you know, he's... Um, so, let's look at a few examples. Because this, <coughs> I think, is some in very interesting points here that... And so, what we're going to look at is... Whether Jesus, in his ministry, quoted from the Septuagint or, you know, Hebrew text. So if it can be proved that Christ actually quoted from the Greek text, then it, I think it's a strong indication that he's speaking Greek. I think that's a fair statement, right? Okay. Turn to Mark uh, 7, 5. I'll read a few verses here. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, 
Why walk not thy disciples after the tradition of the elders? But eat bread with unwashed hands. He answered and said unto them, Well, hath Isaiah prophesied of you, you hypocrites, as is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such like things ye do. You see, the emphasis is that, you know, Christ is condemning them because they're following the traditions of men and they're making void or vain the commandments of God. So that's a quote from Isaiah 29, 13, which I'll read to you out of the King James, um, which would be a very good representation of what the Hebrew text would say. It says, Wherefore the Lord saith, For as much as his people draw near me with their mouth and their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. So you notice that the, the end there, well, first the statement, in vain do they worship me, and that the, the teachings, the doctrines of commandments of men isn't actually in the Hebrew text. But let me read to you the, the Greek tra translation of Isaiah 29, 13. And the Lord has said, this people draw nigh to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching the commandments and doctrines of men. So you see that the quotation there in the Gospel of Mark is, is from the Septuagint. It's from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, very clearly. But it, and it's not just to the point where maybe Mark, writing in Greek, decided it would be best to quote the Septuagint. The, because the, the emphasis of that verse is on, you know, that, that Christ is making, is that they are teaching the doctrines and commandments of men. So you see that it's actually the context of the conversation that drives at the reading of the Septuagint text. <clears throat> Let's look at another example. Matthew 21, 9. I'm going to read a few verses because I want to come back to a certain word that we find in this text. Before, so we're going to get a, quite a bit of the story here. This would be uh, about Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the multitudes that went before and followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And he, when he was come into Jerusalem, and all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And he said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple, and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased, and said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus said unto them, Yea, I, have ye never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? So we see that the disciples, or not the disciples, the Pharisees and so forth are, are very displeased that the people in the temple are literally praising and crying out to, to Christ. They're looking for salvation from him, and that's, that's what's got them irritated, that the children are crying after him. <clears throat> now, that, that's a quote that Christ quoted from, is from Psalms 8, verse 2. 
Look at Psalms 8, verse 2. I'll read it to you. It says, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies. Notice the, the quotation, and now let me read to you from, from the Greek text of that. So Psalms 8, 2, out of the Septuagint, would read, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise because of thine enemies. When you see in the context that what, the, what they're mad at is they're praising Jesus in the temple. And so, it's not, again, it's, it can't just be that Christ is quoting the Greek text, be, or that the author is late, you know, writing in the Greek text, because the perfected praise, it's the praising that's got the Pharisees all in an uproar. And so the, the context of the situation demands the reading of the Greek text of the Old Testament. It's, it's what's there. So what language did he, you know, if he's quoting the Greek text, what language is everyone, you know, using and what text of scripture are they familiar with? Well, it seems to me that it's got to be the Greek text. So when somebody tells you everything happened in Aramaic, all of this conversation happened in Aramaic originally, it doesn't fit. Um, another example, this might be just a small, in uh, Christ, when he's tempted, um, Matthew 4.10. Then saith Jesus unto them, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Um, in the, that's a quote from Deuteronomy 6.13. It says, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and serve him, and shalt swear by his name. The reading in the LXX the Septuagint, thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Now, we see that the word only is in the Greek text of, of Deuteronomy, but not in the, in the Hebrew text. So, but that, that only really has emphasis in the situation. You know, Christ saying, you will worship only the Lord. So, there's a, there's a couple others, but let's stop with that. And, you know, I... I you know, I'm not saying that Aramaic wasn't a language used in Judea, you know, or in Galilee. I think it was very much a bilingual region. But if I think about, you know, Christ knew that the Gospels and the Epistles needed to be written, and what he spoke needed to be recorded for future generations, for the, you know, Christian faith to be uh, perpetual. And I think that, you know, very much so, he would have foreseen that and seen that they would be written in the Greek language. And so, you know, it's not outside the realm of possibility that he spoke most of his public addresses, like I said, in the Greek tongue. You know, he has 2020 foresight and had this all well planned out, so to speak. But, you know, and also it's, you know, you take the prophecy of Christ and I think it's in the Olivet Discord. It says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And so if we put an emphasis on and say that, you know, Christ considered it part of his ministry to break the tradition that the name Jehovah or Yahweh was, was not spoken. Cause that, it was a well-established trans tradition at the time, it seems to be. Um, 
know, if that really was part of his ministry, if, if every time he quoted from, you know, the Hebrew scriptures, he said Yahweh or said, you know, Jehovah, said a, you know, transliteration or, you know, the spoken name rather than, you know, using the tradition at the time of translating it to Lord or saying Adonai in Hebrew or Kyrios in Lord in Greek, um, you know, if, if he did say the name all the time, we simply do not have a record of that. And so can we really say that, you know, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away? If that was really part of the emphasis of Christ's teaching was that, you know, he came in, his, in the name of his father. And, you know, so he said, yeah, all the time. If that really is our belief... And I'm sorry, but because the texts that record what he said do not have that name in it, then it, it flies in the face of saying that his words have not passed away. Because it's not in there. You can interpret it to say that's what he meant, but physically, it's not there. There is no Greek text of the New Testament that has Yahweh written in it. So, you know, that, that really is my opinion, is that all translators, all theories aside, we should follow the example of the apostles. If we're quoting from the Hebrew scriptures, and we have the Tetragrammaton in the text, we should follow their example, do as they did. In all cases, when, you know, quoting from the Old Testament, when they saw the Hebrew Tetragrammaton, they either translated it to Lord or God, you know, the language in which they were speaking. And, you know, reading those, those quotes and the differences between the Greek and Hebrew text that I just went through, you know, I don't want you to think that I'm, like, bashing the Hebrew text at all. I, I very much, you know, believe that the Masoretic text is the inspired and preserved inerrant uh, text that we should look to for the text of the Hebrew Scriptures. But what I think that we can learn from that is that Christ used the language and the accepted you know, Bible, you know, the accepted written word at that time to speak to the people. That's the real example that we have from that. So, although I, you know, I earnestly believe that we should simply just take it as a child's faith, that we should follow the example of, of the apostles in and with the, the Tetragrammaton in the name of the Lord, that we should just simply call him the Lord. That's the example that we have from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul, and James. But it is, nonetheless, I think, somewhat of a, maybe a, a good thing to look at scholastically. And also, you know, the, the main th reason that I stand, I think, so much against the, the sacred name doctrine is that it does a real damage to the idea of the inspiration of Scripture inspiration and preservation, the inerrancy of Scripture, that Scripture is without error. Because, well, if you're going to emphasize a name for God and it's not in the text, then you're going to conclude that, well, the text is wrong. And that's, that's really dangerous to, to start walking down that road. Very, very dangerous. <clears throat> so, I think that, you know, we should have confidence in, in a pronunciation of the name 
of God of the Tetragrammaton because it is inner, you know, it is part of the text. And so if we're going to say that the, the Hebrew text itself is without error, then because the name is contained therein, then we should be able to um, have a definitive belief and defense of what that name should be. Um, you know, there's multiple prophecies in Psalms and Isaiah, you know, so shall my word be that goeth forth from my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish the desire whereto I send it. That's, those are beautiful words that, you know, his word will be perpetual throughout all generations. You know, Psalms 12 says that, um, you know, his word is pure as, you know, as silver tried in the furnace seven times. And it shall be for everlasting. And, you know, since his name, you know, the name of the Lord is part of that, we should have confidence in what it is. So, so real quick, I'd like to talk about kind of the difference, you know, if you're saying Jehovah and somebody over here is saying Yahweh, I mean, those are radically different, right? The only thing we can really agree on is that the Hebrew hey or is equivalent to the English H. That's about the only thing we've got in common at that point, right? So nothing else on there is in any agreement. Um, so firstly, I'd like to say that as a first point, and you know, I do defend the, the pronunciation of Jehovah. Um, I think that is apt, that it is it is correct. So first thing I'd say is that well, Jehovah is what is in the Hebrew text. As a first and foremost point, any Hebrew manuscript you look at will have the vowelization and pronunciation of Jehovah in it. So to me, that is pretty solid. Um, as, as a kind of a second point to that, the you know, so the, the theory of why Jehovah would not be correct is that the vowel points, you know, in Hebrew is a kind of a consonantal language, and there's a theory that the vowel points were added later, and that at the time that those vowel points are added, that they didn't want people to say the, the full name of God. They had a superstition around that, and so the theory is that they put the vowel points of the Hebrew word Adonai or Lord around the Tetragrammaton so that when people came to it in the text, they would know to say Adonai instead of, you know, pronouncing the name. Well, simple fact is that the vowel points that you find in the Hebrew text around the Tetragrammaton to, that are, you know, used to get the pronunciation Jehovah, they're not the same as Adonai. Okay, there's there are literally three dots different, and there's, and there's only about seven dots that make it up. <laughs> so they're not the same, and you know I think it's a pretty good argument that if they were meant to be, the, you know, they're meant to say, hey, don't say this, say Adonai, they would have used the same vowel points. <laughs> um, and. And I guess I want to talk about the vowel points. I think that that's important. <laughs> because the, the whole idea that the vowel points are added, or kind of a, there's a Tiberian Masorite uh, theory. Then that was introduced by a, by a Jew named Elijah Levitt around the Reformation era, a little bit after that. He's, before that, they were considered just to have always been part of the text. Or possibly that it was Ezra who put him in there as the canonizer of the of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, 
But it's, that's well accepted now that the vowel points were added between the years 500 and 1000 AD. Okay. Um, I just I found this recently. I thought this was pretty interesting. So Jerome, this guy, is a church father who translated the Latin Vulgate um, around 400, a little bit before 400 AD. Okay. So this would have, according to that well-established and accepted, or not established, but well-accepted theory that the Masoretes added the points beginning in about 500, Jerome predated that, okay, by about 100 years at least. And so, but the thing is that he translated the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Old Testament from the Hebrew text. He originally started with the, you know, taking it from the Greek, but he decided that the Hebrew was actually the original and that's what he should be using. So he went and got, you know, a copy of the Hebrew text, which according to, you know, the story that we accept, it should have been strictly a consonantal text because the vowel points, everybody says, had not been made yet, right? That's, that's what they'll tell you. There are no vowel points at f the point of 400 AD, okay? I want to read to you a couple quotations from Jerome in some of his notes. So Jerome also specific, uh, I guess this isn't a quotation, it's kind of just a little bit of a running commentary from an author writing about the vowel points. So Jerome also specifically speaks of the Hebrew vowels and accents in a variety of his writings, commenting on the word HDO in Isaiah 65:15. He spoke of the different accents the word can have. Okay. What are these accents if it's just a consonantal text? In his commentary on Ecclesiastes 12:5, he refers to the difference of that same word in Jeremiah 1:11 and 2 between and he gives a kind of a transliteration of the two words. Can't really pronounce them. So, writing that the word uh, etc. In, in the beginning of Jeremiah with a character and an accent signifies a different meaning. So what are these characters and accents that Jerome is referring to if they're not in the text? If it's just a consonantal text at that point. Oh. Um, coming on Ezekiel 27.18 Jerome wrote Hebrew nouns have very different interpretations from the difference of accent and the changes of letters and vowels especially such as have their peculiar uses. So, you know, there he said they have different vowels. So, it seems like he's not using a strictly consonantal text in 400 AD. <clears throat> Likewise, in his commentary on Jonah, he writes, I'm quite surprised at some translations since the Hebrew there is in is no such close relation between the letters, syllables, accents, and words. He comments on Genesis 10.13. They point the word she arose as, and it gives a Hebrew of that. Furthermore, commenting on Genesis 47.31, he defends the Hebrew reading of bed rather than staff. Although both alternatives have the same consonants, So, you know, there seems to have been very much in his text something that indicated vowels and accents. Um, you know, in a, a Reformed view, going back, you know, not very far, was that when Christ in the Sermon on the Mount says that one jot 
or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law until all be fulfilled. Certainly, you know, I don't believe everything's been fulfilled, but if you, if you look at that, you know, what he said there, it, it's a reference to the Hebrew text. One jot is one jod or yod. And so, you know, that's the smallest consonant in Hebrew. It's kind of just a, almost a dot with like a little horn and a leg coming off of it. You know, it's, it's the smallest Hebrew letter. But what does he mean by tittle? When you look up that Greek word there and it means essentially vowel or accent. So what is he referring to in that? You know, the Reformed view has always been that that means that not the smallest consonant or the vowel sound will be lost from the Hebrew text. And so to say that the very name and pronunciation of God was lost from the text is definitely not agreeing with our Lord's word about how the preservation of scripture would be. So, you know, so the, the whole, you know, it's really just kind of a Jewish idea added that, you know, the vowel points are late by some Jewish scribes, you know, around 700 AD. And also, you know, they're the ones that put forth the idea that the vowels of the give us Jehovah are wrong. So, you know, are you going to go with Christ saying that not the smallest consonant, not the vowel sound will be lost from the text or this Jewish theory that they're added and they're wrong? Um, the third point looking at the name Jehovah is that all of the, what they'd call a theophoric name, a theophoric name is a name that has part of the name of God within, within the name. So all the theophoric names that begin with yod Hey vav are all pronounced to, with the same vowel sounds as Jehovah. So you have names like Jehoshaphat, which means the Lord is our judge. You have names like Jehonathan, which means the Lord is gracious. Um, you have, then, you know, like the, and you kind of think about, well, let me think, the name Jehonathan, you know, how that's kind of broken down, and we have John out of that. Why do we have John from Jehonathan? Well, because we kind of shortened it up, we got, we got, kind of dropped the E-H, so it was Jehonathan, Jehonathan, John. So that, you know, that attests to that O being there, right? You see that? Um, you know, and then let's turn real quick to, so I think you need to see this one in print. Let's look at uh, Numbers 13, verse 16. Numbers 13, verse 16. It says, These are the names of the men which Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Oshia, the son of Nun, Jehoshua. And so that's, that's talking about who, you know, we call Joshua. But it's giving his, his full theophoric name. And that's Jeho, you know, from Jehovah, that it's got the, it's actually got the first three letters of the divine name, yod Hey vav in the text, added to the Hebrew word Shua, which means salvation. So it's Jehovah saves, is what that name means. Um, and then we get, we kind of get Joshua from that because, you know, again, we drop the kind of shorten it up, drop the E and the H, and we have Jehoshua, Joshua. 
So that O is an attestation to the, the middle vowel sound of Jehovah. We see that, you know, Oshia. That's a, another way to shorten up that full name, Jehoshua. You know, that we have a prophet, a minor prophet named Hosea, right? And that's because we've, complete, we've dropped the Yod, the E, and the E, and so we just have Hosea or Hosea, right? You following? So there's about, I think, probably 30 names that begin with that yod heh vav that are all pronounced as Jehonathan, Jehoshua, etc. Jehotazid, um, just all these names. But, you know, I'm not going to ignore that there's a lot of names end in Yah, right? Like Isaiah, Jeremiah. Um, and so, you know, you might say, oh, there's a contradiction. You have all these names to begin with with you know, the name of God and they're pronounced this way and then there's all these names that have the end in the name of God and you know, so they're like you know, at war with each other <laughs> you know, so it's, how it's kind of painted when you go to look at how, you know, what the name should really be and, what, and how it should be pronounced and I, I don't think that's really a contradiction we're going to look at that but, but you, know, so you see what I'm saying you know, and you'll have people will say well you got to use Yahweh because Isaiah is, you know, the way that that's emphasized, right? But, but nevertheless, it is a very strong point that all the names begin with yod heh vav have vowel sounds that, per, that support Jehovah. Okay? Um, let's look at a psalm really quick. This kind of goes back to the story we read out of Matthew, but turn to Psalms 118. You'll see that Psalms 118 is actually a very important psalm to, to Christians. Um, at Atonement, we read how when the uh, apostles departed the upper room, and when, it says that when they had sung in hymn, they departed the room. Um, it's almost universally considered that Psalms 118 is that hymn that they sung that night. It's uh, the last of what's called the Paschal Hymns. Uh, they come from one, Psalms 113 to 118. And Psalms 118 it was used in liturgical worship in the temple. Um, you can see that beginning. And let's, uh, let's go through this kind of as a congregation. You'll see that there's, like in my Bible, the, the last part of the text is, is italicized. And so that would be the, the congregational answer. And so Psalms 118, the, you know, the priest would stand up and say, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. And the congregation answers... Let Israel now say, Let the house of Aaron now say, Let them that fear the Lord say, So you, know, you can see that that was, that was, was a, Psalms 118 was, was sung a lot and it was used in a, in a liturgical way in the temple. If you look forward to, to verses 25 and 26, I'll read those to you. It says, Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. And you'll recognize that part there. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord from the text we read in Matthew, right? That was part of what they were crying, you know, calling out to the Savior. Um, in verse 25, the, the word order that we have in the King James is slightly different from the Hebrew text. It's actually... O Lord is at the beginning of that verse. And so it says, 
O Lord, save now, we beseech thee. And so in, in Hebrew, that would have sounded like Jehovah, Shua, and then the Hebrew word for now is na. So Jehovah, Shua, na. Jehovah, save us now. And, you know, we have like in the litany, we use a phrase pretty often, O Lord, deliver us. And so this would have been a, a phrase that was used in, in the temple in worship um, as part of their lit- liturgy. O Jehovah, save us now. And, you know, like I said, that's Jehovah, Shua, na. But, you know, as we saw, the name Hos- Hoshia is a shortened form of the combination of Jehovah saves, right? So you could, you could, if you wanted to, you know, that's kind of a mouthful. If you all said Jehovah Shua Na, so you could shorten that up and just say Hoshua Na. And what, what does that sound like? In Greek, you'd, if somebody transliterated that into Greek, Greek doesn't have an SH sound, so what's left? Hoshuna, Hosanna. You see that? So that's where we we got the word Hosanna. It's actually it's a it's a contracted contraction of Jehovah, save us now. And that's what that's what they were crying out to Jesus in the temple, Lord, save us now, Hosanna. That's what that word means. But that's meaningless. There's no element of of the Lord's name unless you understand that that middle syllable of Jehovah, the H-O, is what invokes the name of the Lord in Hosanna. You see that? The Ho, H-O, is the part of the, is the divine element that's put into that to invoke, you know, that we're crawling out to the Lord. Lord, save us now. And, you know, so... Again, is this a contrast? Can we say, well, Hosanna means Jehovah, save us now. But then if we look at hallelujah, we're going to say, praise Yahweh, is what that means. Is it, is it really a contraction? You know, where, why is it that on the end of a name we have Yah, whereas at the beginning we have Jeho? Okay. And let me... I think that there's actually a pretty easy way to understand that. So over here we have the name Jehovah written, right? And we often see in, in the Psalms we'll have a shortened form of the divine name, which is Yah. Okay? And that's kind of a... Jacinius himself said that that's a contraction of the divine name, right? So what is a contraction? Contraction is a word that we take that we essentially leave the first and the last sounds typically and we contract it by removing the middle sounds to make it shorter, right? Um, however, for time without mind, the people, the proponents of, of the pronunciation Yahweh have assumed that that Yah is representative of the first syllable of the divine name, right? So they say that instead of Yeh, we would have Yah. And that, that yaw that we find in the, in the Psalms represents the first syllable, without question. Okay? But that's an assumption. We don't know that because there are two he's, two H's in the divine name. You see that? It's yod he vav he. So if we look at the divine name and we use 
the first and the last sound, like Christ said, I'm the beginning and the end, the first and the last, what's left? Jaw. Yeah. Jaw. So, in the Psalms, we don't have a, we don't have a contrast to Jehovah in the shortened form jaw. We have a substantiation of the pronunciation of Jehovah. The accent in Jehovah is on the last syllable, so it's natural that that would be the vowel that would be kept. So instead, short, you know, so Jehovah is shortened to jaw. Um, in conclusion, I want to say that, you know, it, the reason that this study is, is so important to me is because without the authority of scripture, we have nothing to stand upon. Amen. You know, all doctrines, all disagreements we have, we have to go to scripture to settle that. We have to look at the divine word and accept that as the ultimate authority. Okay. And, you know, we can put a lot of emotion into the name that we use for God. But if it's not in the text, if it's not what's written there, how do you, you know, how do you really establish that? How, I mean, the name Yahweh really only has like three historical references to it. A couple of church, one is from a church father. One is a church father saying that the Samaritans used it, that, you know, that was what they used. And then one, the third is from the Egyptian magical papyri. Who, who wants to get there? I mean, it's literally a book of spells and incantations where they say, you know, you should use the Hebrew name Yah as an incantation. Do you, do you want to get, does that seem like the place you should find the name of God that it would be preserved? Or should you get it from the Hebrew text? Um, you know, like I said, it's, I think it's largely from the influence of the sacred name movement that we've had, you know, interactions and challenges on, on the name of God. Um, and you might think this is an extreme example, but there was one of the guys who's kind of like a founding father of, of that movement, a guy named Jacob O'Meyer. And he wrote a book called Exploding the Myth of the, New, the Inspired Greek New Testament. You know, saying that it was written in Hebrew originally. And, and in conclusion of that book, he said, until such times as the original of the New Testament can be found, we must base all doctrine on the Old Testament. And it's like, wow, you know, that's just so far, so heretical, just so far out there. Um, so my question is, in the Greek New Testament, that's, that's all we have. Everything we know about our Savior and what he taught, we learn from those 27 books. Everything. Apart from that, we have no account. And why is it that the name that the apostles wrote for the man that that entire volume is written about, that we couldn't accept that name? Why do we need to look for something else? Why do we need to look for a, a secret name that may or may not have been used, which is largely made up? And if, if the question about what, how we should treat the, the name of God himself, Jehovah, or 
Yahweh. If there's a question about you know, whether we should translate that or not, let the apostles and disciples be our example. They always wrote the Lord. Why should we seek to be different? Why should we say that their knowledge isn't good enough? Why should we say that we have a better understanding of what Christ's doctrine actually was? There's no grounds on which anybody here could stand up and say that that verse we started with in Romans, that you have the right or enough knowledge to cross out Kyrios, the Lord, and put what you think should have been there. None of us have that authority because Paul wrote by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so let, let, what, let Scripture always be our authority. Thank you.